2: There is so much going on right now having to do with intelligence in the United States. We have, of course, the mounting geopolitical risks in Iran with China and North Korea. And then on the home front, we have the ripple effects that have been ongoing since the release of the Mueller report. Joining us now is no other than Senator Angus King of Maine. He is an independent and he sits on the Intelligence Committee, which is at the epicenter of so much. Uh, Senator, we're so uh, pleased that you could join us today. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, we really want to start with understanding the domestic versus the international. And we do know that the Intelligence Committee just issued a subpoena to Donald Trump Jr. And we're trying to figure out, first of all, what are you hoping to learn there today?
3: Well, I, I think it's important to put that into perspective. Our, our efforts to talk to Donald Trump Jr. go back several months. Uh, the subpoena uh, became public uh, fairly recently, but it's it, it, it's been sort of Uh, uh, discussed as if it was a response to Mitch McConnell saying the case is closed and uh, it really is uh, it went back before that date. Uh, We just want to get uh, get to the bottom of some inconsistencies between testimony that he had already given to the committee and testimony that we received from Michael Cohen uh, to some, uh, they're, they're, uh, I don't want to go any further, but we're trying to uh, tie up some loose ends and inconsistencies in getting to the bottom of what actually happened. It's important to, to clarify the role of the Intelligence Committee investigation versus Mueller. Mueller is a prosecutor. He was looking at violations of law. We're more focused on what actually happened, what were the facts, not whether or not it was a violation of law that can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt and those kinds of things. But we're trying to get at what happened, how did it happen with the Russians, and most importantly, how do we prevent it from happening again in 2020 and in the future? So, Senator, you mentioned uh, Mr. Mueller. Do you expect him to appear before Congress? Are you pushing for that? I think it's important that he do so. Uh, of course, his his report is 458 pages. It's very clearly written. I commend it to people. If you have a weekend, it's it's really worth reading because it, it's uh, somewhat different than what Attorney General Barr represented. Uh, and it's uh, very detailed. And I think he should uh, be allowed to appear. I think he has an important voice. Uh, Congress has a responsibility to uh, do oversight and to get to the bottom of some of these questions. And I think uh... it would be good to hear from him directly as opposed to a characterization of what he said or thought uh, coming from other people
2: certainly uh... while well, the Mueller report has been released and completed uh, by the uh, independent counsel robert muller there are ongoing questions. President Trump continuing to slam the FBI, in particular, as well as intelligence agencies on Twitter. I'm wondering, from your perspective, how concerned are you uh, that the sort of uh, dispersion or, or or the gap between the president and the intelligence agencies will make it more difficult for members of the intelligence uh, community to do their jobs, especially at a time of rising geopolitical risk?
3: Well, I think I think it is a it's a it's a serious problem uh, and. Uh, an unfortunate one. We've got uh, thousands of professionals around the world uh, whose job it is to try to get the best information possible to the president. And uh, there are two problems. One is if he doesn't listen to that information, uh, there's potential mistakes. He, you, can, you, know, you can make errors if you don't pay any attention to the facts. And, and, and that's number one. Number two, there's a subtle message and sometimes not so subtle message that goes back to the intelligence agencies that says, tell me what I want to hear. Uh, cook the data, and uh, if you look back in recent American history, some of our most serious foreign policy disasters have been based upon policymakers pushing the intelligence and military community to to form the 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 story according to what the policymaker wants, where they want it to come out. That is a is a very serious danger, and it's one of the things that really worries me about uh, the president. Uh, uh, attacking and and uh, trying to push around uh, the intelligence agencies, he ought to listen to what they say. He doesn't have to buy it necessarily, but to publicly uh, denigrate what they what these uh, career professionals do is uh, is harmful, as I say, on two levels.
1: Senator, let's switch gears a little bit to uh, cybersecurity. I know that you and Representative Mike Gallagher announced last week that uh, you will be leading a newly established cyberspace Solarium commission. Talk to us a little bit about this commission. What is its focus? What is its scope? What do you hope to learn?
3: Well, this was created... Uh, the, the commission was created by the Congress and, and, and signed by the president. It was in the National Defense Act that passed last year. And the fundamental idea is that we don't have a cyber doctrine or strategy in this country. We have a multiplicity of agencies that are working on it in various ways. But the bottom line is that we're, we're vulnerable we're incredibly vulnerable, both in the private sector and in the public sector, whether it's the energy grid, the financial system, uh, our election system. uh, And right now, as I say, we have no strategy, we have no doctrine. Our adversaries feel that they can attack us with impunity and the purpose of the Commission is there are four members of Congress, four or five members from the executive branch, four or five from the uh, private sector, and we're going to try to come up with something that will serve the country well into the future in dealing with with what I believe is now the most serious threat facing the country. For example, I talked to a CEO recently of a of a major company, who gets who, their company gets attacked three million times a day. I've talked to small banks who get attacked a hundred thousand times a day. Now some of these are state actors, some of them are garden variety crooks, but the point is this is a hugely uh, dangerous and vulnerable situation for this country. And it's only going to be multiplied by 5G where everything's going to be interconnected, vehicles and microwaves and refrigerators and you name it. And that's going to make us even more vulnerable. And so it's it's urgent that we get on top of this and that our adversaries understand that if they attack us, they're going to pay a price.
2: We just have about uh, 30 seconds. But why, why did it take so long? Because it seems like this has been a threat for a while that's been escalating. <laughs>
3: you, 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 uh, you know, damned if I know, I mean, uh, there's a small group of us who have been pounding the table about this in intelligence and armed services for four or five years. It's co- it's complicated. It's hard. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot to it, but it's something that's really important. And finally, I think we're added in a systematic way, and hopefully we can uh, bring some important policies to the fore. Senator Angus King, thank you so much.
1: Senator King is the independent senator from the state of Maine. He also sits on the Intelligence Committee as well as the Armed Services Committee.
2: It does seem like there has been a rapid escalation in geopolitical risk over the past few weeks. Uh, we're really pleased to say that we have joining us Admiral James Stavridis. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and, of course, a retired U.S. Navy Admiral and former military commander of NATO. Admiral, we're so uh, pleased that you could join us today. We have a whole host of things that have happened over the past month: ending the Iranian waivers, Kim Jong Un meeting with Putin, North Korea deploying a weapons test. Then you have the whole uh, situation with Iran that seems to be escalating rapidly with uh, Mike Pompeo leaving a meeting with Russia and going over to deal with the situation and and ships from the U.S. heading to the region. Is there a connecting fiber between all of these events?
4: I don't think so, Lisa. Um, And good morning. I do think that, uh, as I've said elsewhere, this is kind of the revenge of geopolitics. In other words, we've had a relatively quiet, uh, almost a year, really, without any major explosive event. And I think the the year started when the fire and fury in North Korea kind of moved onto the diplomatic track. But as we all know, there's an inevitability, a cycle to this kind of um, this kind of, uh, if you will. Um, uh, volatility, and I don't mean that in an economic sense, but in a geopolitical sense. The one connection I would watch in all this, however, having said all that, is China and Russia, who are growing closer together and are working collectively on Iran, North Korea, Venezuela. There's a bit of a shadow movement back there. That's the space to watch.
1: So Admiral, just wonder if you could just step back a little bit, broadly speak, give us a sense of your assessment of kind of Our relationship with our traditional allies around the world, you know, most notably NATO, how would you characterize that right now as we, you know, take a look at a rising China and, you know, Russia continuing to be an issue?
4: I think it's uneven, Paul. So in terms of uh, U.S.-NATO relations, um, we're not as bad as some of the rhetoric and the tweets would indicate, uh, but we're seeing real separation between the U.S. and the allies On Iran. And that, to me, of all of the things you mentioned in the front piece here, I'd worry most about Iran. And I'd worry specifically about the Arabian Gulf, as you and your listeners will have seen. uh, Just over the last 24 hours, we've seen reports of sabotage attacks, kind of unclear what's happening on both Saudi tankers and UAE ships. Um, The Arabian Gulf is a flashpoint. U.S. and our Traditional European allies couldn't be further apart uh, on Iran. Uh, that's the one to worry about the most.
2: Admiral, walk us through a, a worst case scenario or an escalation with Iran. What, it, what is the outcome there?
4: <clears throat> um, certainly, uh, you've seen the opening salvos on both sides, which are, I think, we will discover that there is Iranian activity behind the uh, attacks on these ships. Um, at the same time, the U.S. is moving a Aircraft carrier strike group, which includes the carrier Abraham Lincoln, into the Gulf. The streams you really don't want to cross here is if Iran were to do something uh, that they thought would be below the radar, but then it was revealed that they attacked a U.S. ship in the Gulf. Not inconceivable at all. I think at that point we're off to the races. Um, So uh, a miscalculation in the maritime space in the Gulf is the biggest worry I have right now. What do you mean we're off to the races? I think you would see uh, U.S. military strikes, pretty significant ones, against uh, Iranian uh, targets and over-response. And that's why that carrier is sent there to deter Iran from doing something that would cause a major set of strikes. Uh, Probably what you would see is attacks on Iranian naval vessels imports like Bandar Abbas in the south of Iran
1: so admiral let's switch gears a little bit to north korea uh missile tests over the last couple of uh days and weeks how concerned should we and obviously our allies in the region be
4: i feel um less concerned about what's happening with north korea i think that one will stay on a diplomatic track because the two major actors here are not the u.s and north korea it's the u.s and china and both the u.s and china Regardless of how the trade war unfolds, uh, both U.S. and China want to avoid a war on the Korean peninsula. So look for that as a zone of, if you will, cooperation between the U.S. and China. I think that one stays on the diplomatic track.
2: Is there an alliance left that is strong enough to uh, continue through these geopolitical risks with the U.S. and Europe? Um it, as long as the U.S. and
4: Europe, particularly using the vehicle of NATO, stay aligned, um, there is plenty of capacity in the West to deal with all of this. Just to give you some numbers, the U.S. spends 600 billion dollars a year on defense. The Europeans spend 300 billion dollars a year on defense. Uh, China and Russia combined spend less than 300 billion. So we outpace them three to one, even if they start working very cohesively together. But the key, Lisa and Paul, is keeping US, European, if you will, NATO together to face these global
1: challenges. So Admiral, we know you have a new book out this year entitled Sailing the True North, 10 Admirals and the Voyage of Character. Just about 20 or 30 seconds. Give us a sense of what's really the key takeaway from that book is for you.
4: That leadership is important and leadership is what we do, what we exert on others. But character is how we lead ourselves. It's internal leadership. So what I tried to do in the book, think Plutarch's Lives Goes to Sea, is to examine 10 naval figures over 2,000 years, both men and women, uh, U.S., Chinese admiral, look internally at character, because I think as this 21st century unfolds, um, our political leadership will begin to turn more on issues of character, perhaps, than it has before. That's what the book's about.
1: Admiral James Stritus, thank you so much. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and, of course, retired U.S. Navy Admiral and former military uh, commando uh, from NATO joining us uh, from Washington, D.C.
2: All the major U.S. indices are lower today, but tech is getting especially hit And in the tech universe. Apple uh, shares down more than 5%, and there's kind of a double whammy here. Joining us to talk about this uh, in all things tech, Tom Giles, Executive Editor for Technology for Bloomberg, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Tom, so let's start with Apple, sort of a double whammy here. Can you lay out what's going on?
5: Sure. It started out bad for Apple when we got the news about the the, the retaliatory trade tariffs from china right um the concern is that that's just going to affect the pricing the you know the competitiveness of their products both directions um trade war has been a constant uh, you know drag on apple stock for many months now and and this just brought it home even further then later in the morning we got the supreme court decision that essentially said consumers can now sue apple over Pricing in the App Store, right? So when when an app when an app developer, say Spotify, wants to make its product available on the App Store. Uh, Apple charges them a 30% commission, as it were, this ta- App Store tax. Um, there's been this growing drumbeat of opposition to this. Spotify taking it up with, uh, you know, European regulators. Um, now you're, we're seeing it again in the Supreme Court. Uh, what that it's the concern is that that's going to put added pressure on Apple to reduce or maybe even do away with these fees that it charges app developers. I don't think you're going to see a complete. Uh, elimination of them but certainly this idea of is it fair for Apple to charge an app developer a 30% commission if it wants to sell its wares on their their marketplace and remember that really resonates right now with a growing political you know discourse in this country about whether the big tech companies are too big too per- powerful Liz Warren for example has raised some of these same issues about the Amazons and the Apples of the world—is it legal? Is it right for them to be able to compete with the same players that operate on their marketplace? So, in Amazon's case, it's they, they run a marketplace, but Amazon is actually competing with some of these people who sell their goods on its on its on its. Um, on its on its platform, and the same thing is happening here with Apple. And, and for Apple, it's
1: it's a particularly an issue because they're trying to pivot their investment story away from "Hey, we're just an iPhone." We want you to focus more on our subscription, our services business. That this hits right at the heart
5: of that. Absolutely, at a time when uh, iPhone demand is either stagnating or declining, or certainly not having the growth that we saw for that for a decade. Right, this was the cash cow, and now Apple increasingly wants you to think about them as a service provider company. And a big part of those services are ones that are available in the App Store, this huge platform where we go to make purchases for all of these kinds of products. Netflix, for example, Spotify is the other example. And and what they're increasingly saying to Apple is, well, we shouldn't have to pay you this commission to operate on your marketplace.
2: So Apple definitely having a bad day and we really can't underplay the point that trade really plays here too, given how much Apple depends on China. But we would be remiss if we didn't get some uh, comments from you on Uber and what's been going on there. Shares down today, 9.4%, uh, now trading at $37.68 a share. Remember the IPO last week, $45. So it's been a brutal opening. And again, the real question here is how much is this a ride sharing specific story and how much is this a commentary on those unicorns, on those private tech companies uh, that they are overvalued and are really have not that much upside?
5: Yeah, great question. So for Uber right now, they could not have gone public at a worse time, right? <laughs> this is the two days when the trade concerns over trade have been the absolute worst so there is an element in fairness where you would want to see how they'd be performing if that weren't happening that said, when you look at the commentary right now that's coming out of Wall Street, it's very clear in raising a great deal of skepticism about the business model, the path to profitability. How long is that going to take? And they're looking at Uber's S1 and Lyft's numbers. Um, they just had their first quarter results as well as a public traded company. And they're looking at them and going, I don't see a clear path to profitability. So I've got concerns about it.
1: Tom. Thanks so much for joining us. You're based in San Francisco. Joining him, when, we, when he comes to New York, Lisa, we just got to grab him and get him in studio yeah, because there's so him. much going on. We just
2: <laughs> wrangled him from the hallway. You got to come exactly,
1: in. Come on. Exactly. Tom Giles, executive editor for Bloomberg Technology. I'll tell you, the technology reporters, Tom, you have got in San Francisco and New York and around the world, but particularly The ones there are just doing fantastic work, keeping up to date with all the new companies, all the new technologies, uh, all the new policy issues uh, uh, impacting tech. Well, the rising trade tensions between the U.S. and China cannot be good for emerging markets. To get a sense of how to view emerging markets in a current scenario, we turn to Dr. Wynn Thin. Dr. Thin is Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman & Company. Uh, he joins us on the phone from New York. Uh, Dr. Thin, thanks so much for joining us. So how do you approach emerging markets given the deteriorating trade scenario that seems to be developing over the last week or so?
6: Uh, first of all, thanks. So it's always a pleasure to come on. Um, Honestly, I've been negative on EM all this year, and that's really mainly due to the sort of slower global growth, um, you know, simmering trade tension story. So, to me, this latest flare-up in the trade wars just sort of crystallizes those risks, and you know, sort of doubles down on it. Because, look, face it, tariffs, like um, a true trade war between the two biggest world economies, um, it was one of those exogenous shocks that could—I'm not saying it will—that could uh, trigger a serious downturn in the global economy. But that's not my base case. That's tail risk, but I think the tail risk is growing. My base case is that they still work. They it takes a while. It's going to take longer than we expected, but they work out some sort of face-saving compromise uh, over the next couple of months. And you know, it's I think the markets disappointed because all the comments were steering the markets towards yeah, yeah, deal is close. We're going to get one in May or June. And and you know, uh, markets took them at the word. We're hearing from both sides, both China and U.S. So this was a real gut check, and I think it's. You know, it's, it's gonna take a while to get over it. Um, you know, so where are we left, well, global trade will, will suffer, global growth risk arising, and those are two things that are very, very, very negative for EM. Uh, and so, uh, I see continued weakness. I would say intensified weakness ahead.
2: Okay, so right now we are seeing the MSCI emerging markets uh, currency index actually poised for its worst day since August 2018. It's the lowest level now since January, so the beginning of January, so we've basically erased 2019 gains. I guess the question is, going forward, how much more downside, I mean, you were saying basically it could deepen, uh, but are we talking about, you know, a real sort of downturn that is devastating for all the people who are long EM earlier this year?
6: Uh, yes. I'd say, you know, at the very least, if you're looking at, say, let's say we just look at MSCI EM, just the equities itself, uh, then you have to look at, you know, possibly revisiting the, the January low. I mean, I think the currency, you point out the currency index, which is based on the equity index, it's, it's leading this move. It's almost, it's, it's heading towards that way. So my, my feeling is that the currencies will most likely drag the equities lower. Um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, for the MSCI EM, we have a January low of uh, I don't know, somewhere around 950 something and change. I think 940 something. You know, I think that's totally within reach. Um, again, it, part of it's also how protracted this is. If it's, it was going to be short and sweet, uh, or you know, sort of short and sharp, then okay, then we can kind of get over this. But just, I think both sides are digging in. I think. We, yep. I think what happened with Friday, people got little Optimistic. Oh, hey, they're both making some constructive comments. But over the weekend. You know, the sabers started rattling we started getting some sniping uh, and to me it, it's it's this is not the sort of the environment for gets conducive for a deal well, we had that a couple of weeks ago uh with but the way things have kind of developed in this you know very very to me a, a very sharp escalation of trade threats and 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 retaliation i don't think this is something that the two sides can get over quickly so what am i thinking maybe at least a month or two before we can actually really talk about they're not even talking right now they, they, they've been invited back to china but there's no date set so, you know, it's it's not going to be easy. Again, my base case is not that this turns into an all-out trade war that lasts for months and months and months. But that is a tail risk that I think markets are, are starting to price in.
2: What about the UN? Because I, I feel like China now has a, a greater incentive to allow a devaluation of the Chinese currency, especially as trade rhetoric heats up. I mean, how much is that kind of factoring into your scenarios here?
6: Well, that's always a you know a, a, sort of a, a thesis that pops up from time to time. But to me, the Chinese officials, despite you know all these tensions that uh, throughout this last year, um, the Chinese officials have said, "Look, we're not going to weaponize Iran, And I, I, I take them at the word. You know, we had uh, I put out a piece uh, last week, just sort of going through the history of the, of the their exchange rate process. But the last time they devalued was uh, I think August of 2015, and it it caused mayhem not just uh, in global markets but in Chinese uh, especially in Chinese markets. We had huge capital outflows from China that, that required uh, extensive capital control. and It was very destabilizing to China, not just the global markets. And I don't think they want to go down that road. So I, I, I really do take them at the word. I don't think it will be weaponized. Yes, the yuan is performing poorly, but it's within the context of, of a, 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 basically an EM meltdown. So um, actually, year to date, uh, the yuan is actually flat right now. It's one of the, the top performers, um, like the top five or six performers. Um, flat whereas the peso, Argentine peso down almost twenty percent, Turkish lira was thirteen percent, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you know, if anything, I think they would like to kind of keep it on the more stable side. But um it's funny, if you do a if you do a, a um correlation, I I love this one of your functions on, on Bloomberg, if you do a correlation between C N Y uh, currency and the MSCI EM FX, um index you see, the correlation is around 0.75, which means, to me, it tells me, that, look, you know, rather than sort of um, resisting market forces, the, the policymakers in China are actually allowing the yuan to trade more in line with market, sort of wider EM and market forces. So, uh, look, you know, people ask me, where do I think the yuan is going? I said, well, where do you think EM is going? If the EM is going to weaken, then, e, then the yuan is going to weaken as well, and that's what we're seeing.
2: Dr. Winthin, thank you so much for joining us on this day uh, of, of some skittishness in emerging markets and certainly the currencies there where you're seeing volatility pick up a lot more than you're seeing in developed markets. Dr. Winthin, Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, joining us from New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm
6: Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th,